In 2015, I spoke with Dr. Wilson Wong about his work on the 2014 Ebola outbreak. And as we deal with the coronavirus here in New York City, I thought that this would be a good time to share that episode. Stay tuned for the next episode of Talking Taiwan, when I'll be bringing back Dr. Wong to speak about how his Ebola work led him to establish walking doctors and his current work on COVID-19, the coronavirus in New York City. You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. On today's podcast, we're going to be talking about what a robot, a Jedi, and Wi-Fi have to do with the Ebola crisis. I'm going to be talking to Wilson Wong, Senior Clinical Director at the International Rescue Committee. And welcome to the podcast, Wilson. Thank you so much, Felicia. Maybe we could start by talking about what is the mission of the International Rescue Committee. Yeah, um, let me just start by saying that I've worked for the International Rescue Committee for a little over two and a half years. And so it is, uh, in my perspective, a great organization, but uh, it is sometimes hard to summarize a $500 million annual organization that's been around for 70 years. So I just want to say that I am not the expert in the IRC. I am an employee of the, uh, of the IRC. But essentially, the IRC is a, is an organization that responds to emergencies throughout the world. It started as a request from Albert Einstein. Uh, in 1933 uh, as an offshoot of an organization that he was leading to lend help to Jewish people in Germany that were being uh, persecuted. And uh, it has since evolved. It's sort of like KFC. KFC is Contact Your Fried Chicken. We know that we don't rescue everyone, but initially we were doing rescue work. And now we do a lot of stabilization work and response work. So, for example, during the tsunamis, in Indonesia years ago, IRC, that would be something that we would be on the ground for, providing support for medical systems, providing direct care, providing food, providing education, providing relief, providing witness. Um, The same thing for the Ebola crisis in West Africa. We are one of the first uh, to respond, not only because it's our mission, but because we are normally in those countries. And I think that's what is very unique about the IRC. It's not only that we respond, but we respond because essentially what's happening is to our neighbors, um, people that we work with on the day to day. And uh, how, did, how did you get involved with the IRC? So you've been here for about two and a half years. Yeah, this is a story on maybe how one gets a job in this, <laughs> in this world, or in the United States at right. least. I was. Um, some people, not, some people. That's actually a common question, and right. I, I only half joke that I used to work for the New York City Department of Health, and that drove me to international work or drove me to Liberia. What I mean by that uh-huh. is that the New York City Department of Health is a very hallowed institution and very famous, but mm-hmm. also because it's so big, it's laden with bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, if you want to do things, you have aspirations to make a difference. Mm-hmm very difficult to do. So after three and a half years uh, serving in in the New York City Department of Health in Harlem where I met you, I I decided that, well, why don't I go to uh, work internationally? And years before, I had spent seven months in Rwanda helping to open up a hospital, and I sort of got the international health bug. I decided to still uh, work in the Department of Health because I had other objectives uh, that I was interested in. But that bug of trying to be of use to uh, different 
uh, types of people in different places, uh, totally unique to me, was was still interesting. And so I thought, oh, how very easy! I'll just send out some applications. Who doesn't want a free doctor? Or who doesn't <laughs> want a you know someone who has uh, the desire and the and a plan to to be of assistance? And pretty much for three months, nothing. Um, and so I decided I'm going to cold call. So I cold called the former vice president of the International Rescue Committee. I picked him because he's basically the only one that uh, accepted my call. And uh, within two weeks, I had a job. And within four weeks, I was off to Liberia, where I lived for two years um, and served as a deputy director of health for our programs there. That's great. I mean, you must have said something uh, pretty convincing in that conversation. I would like to think so, but probably not. I probably just... Think it was the right time, the right place. <laughs> or it's more, let me throw this person a bone. I mean, usually if you... Sometimes when you're reticent to do something, you just imagine yourself in the opposite. So now in my position, if someone were to call me and say, hey, I'm really interested in joining the business. I'm really interested in what you do. I'm not going to be offended. I'm going to say, okay, let's hear what you have to say. Let, mm -hmm. let me talk to you. And I think that's exactly what happened. People right. saw someone who was interested, had some background, right. um, and gave a, a little bit of opportunity. And as is always the case in international health, you get to those places and you think, why was it so hard to get here? Because when you get to those places, usually the, the problem is lack of resources and lack of human resources. So why do you think that is? Why is it so hard to get there then? Well, I think everyone loves, or ideally, loves the work they do and I think at the IRC people in this business they're not especially for the money they're not mm -hmm. uh, in it for uh, the wildlife mm -hmm. they or maybe literally the wildlife if you know, it depends where <laughs> you <the> go <laughs> <laughs> but uh, because you care about something sometimes you can be too protective mm. and I think sometimes that's an unfortunate consequence of getting old too where you think okay maybe People don't understand, don't have the same experience as I do. Uh, they're not as uh, practical. And I think that needs leads to some type of protectionism of, of self and of, of vocation. Right. Um, and so I think that is the reason. Mm -hmm. But right. as is most often the case, that you can always find uh, a very sort of, you can find individuals or humans within complicated systems. Right, that, right and as you did, and um, but I'm also curious, tell me about when you went to Rwanda, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean that happened before I joined the New York City Department of Health, oh, okay. but the pattern was actually exactly the same. Back then I worked for the United States Senate as the health advisor and policy writer for Joseph Lieberman. And uh, after two and a half years of that, where the outcome of our teams was essentially to pass laws and make a difference to the health of Americans, I thought, okay, I've learned how to do that, and it's time to become real. Right. Sometimes it's very unreal in that setting, not particularly diverse. Um, sometimes policy decisions very uh, divorced physically, temporarily from the actual thing that you're trying to accomplish. I thought, okay, I need to get real after being here for two and a half years. So I thought, oh, I'm going to volunteer. And I think I'll go to Sub-Saharan Africa because I've never been there before. And I thought, well, why would I have never been to Sub-Saharan Africa if I've traveled throughout the world? There must be something back then I thought wrong with me. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I'm going to volunteer. And so I had read this great book that's very uh, famous now by Tracy Kidder called Mountains Beyond Mountains that 
uh, looked at the work of Paul Farmer, who works out of Harvard and is really a, a role model for many people in the field of international health. He did it before it was popular, right. in other words. Nothing. Three, four months, nothing. And so finally I said, hmm. I didn't, it wasn't exactly a cold call, but I remember his co-founder, Jim Kim, he once gave a talk at an event my sister was setting up uh, at Stanford, and so I just sent him an email, and again three weeks later I was then in Kigali, uh, Rwanda, and so I, I stayed there for just seven months. Right. Back then it felt like seven years, oh, yeah, but, I can't imagine. But, yeah. but seven months at that point in my life and uh, age, career, it felt like a long time, but it was extremely formative, and one thing I love about that organization, Paul Partners in Health, mm -hmm. that's Paul Farmer's organization, mm -hmm. is that it they empowered me to really do whatever was necessary to uh, increase the you know the health of our patients at this growing hospital at the Tanzanian Rwanda border was what was very fun about that experience not only it being the first time I've been to Africa was that this book this great book by Tracy Kidder talked about Paul Farmer talked about Jim Kim talked about his beautiful wife Dee Dee and his daughter Catherine and when I first went to Rwanda I thought okay I'm going to the bush somewhere I'm, I'm gonna be ready I don't know exactly what to expect no I went to a restaurant where I bet <laughs> met every character in that book and it was just at New Year's Eve and I remember Paul saying well we're not gonna go to Rinkwavu quite yet because it's pretty much shut down the new year and I basically partied not yeah, in a yeah. debaucherous right, way but I right. partied with Paul Farmer and all the characters in that book for wow. two days before I headed out to the to the figurative <laughs> bush yeah it was very funny that's great wow could you tell me a little bit about what you do now at IRC and um, how your work here left you led you to work with the Ebola crisis sure I had worked for two years with the IRC in Liberia, and it was good, but these things often cycle. So after two years, it seemed like a good time to make a transition. I then made a transition to Indonesia. I had never worked in Asia, and the funny or not funny part of the story is that after Liberia, my wife and I were going to go to the Congo. Eastern Congo, where uh -huh. there was relatively significant amount of violence, oh, wow. and frankly, we decided not to go there because we didn't think our marriage could stand it. I mean, <laughs> already after Liberia, it was sort uh -huh. of hanging by tendrils. But I thought if we went to Eastern Congo, it might not work out, um, just because of the pressure. It's not sure. like we're saying I'm saying that it was no, too honest. much sacrifice yeah. or. Uh, too difficult. It's just Realistic. it's just hard, right? Mm -hmm. There's one main road in Monrovia, and you go to the field, and you're gone for a while. Not a lot of necessary support uh, uh, if you have strong, mm -hmm. you know, friends and family. Right. Like right. It's not like my I could go see my mom, for example. Right. My mom's not not there. Although you could call her in uh, eight months of the year. The other four months, it was it was always raining too much oh, wow. to even call home. Really? Yeah. So we decided, okay, let's go to Indonesia. And I just a long story short, I basically knew of a job that I thought I'd never take, but we ended up taking it. And it was great. Uh, but then a two-year cycle happened again, and we were about to make a transition, and then the Ebola crisis hit. And then my mentor here, Emmanuel Darkor. 
he knew that I was available. And although my career has moved more towards management, health management, creation of systems that can increase the probability that a patient or a person can obtain health, I've always got kept into clinical practice, mostly out of the hospital. I did that not even necessarily because it's the most interesting. Sometimes the practice of medicine can be uh, rather not interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, but I remember a mentor of mine a long time ago, you get old, you get a lot of mentors, he said, <laughs> you spent so much time to be a doctor, do not, not practice right. medicine. And I really liked it because it's true. Like you, it's more important to construct the system that can guarantee or help someone reach health. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have a human face and touch and feel to that system, you create all wrong. Mm -hmm. So it was always good that, okay, this balance, so when I get right. too tired of, of very rigid, aseptic, metallic systems, then I can go practice and see, okay, how can these systems be made better? And when I get tired of the routine of patient care, which which is great, but it can, you know, it can also sure. become routine, sure. then you can say, okay, what thing bigger can I do to, to make sure that this thing doesn't just happen to one patient, but happens to thousands of patients, or ideally millions of patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how do you make an impact? Yeah, exactly. So, Emmanuel knew that I was available. The IRC was asked to create, essentially, an Ebola treatment unit, a hospital for Ebola patients, and frankly, we didn't have that experience. Wow. Frankly, I didn't have that experience, but wow. I do have experience taking care of patients in the hospital, and in general, it's not that different. The okay. practice of medicine, mm -hmm. whether it's malaria or mm -hmm. Ebola, mm -hmm. um, is very similar, except for the big distinction is usually it's a downer if you think your patient's going to kill you. And I think the infection sort of scare the of Ebola, the, the, yeah, the contagious aspect mm -hmm. of it, is one that made this a very unique response. Mm -hmm. So essentially, I was asked to come back to the IRC because I was available. Uh, to help the IRC set up its Ebola treatment unit in Monrovia, and I was happy to do so. Wow, that's great. So what does that entail? I don't know if you can summarize or maybe you can talk about some of the highlights, because as I mentioned, there was like a robot, a Jedi, something, an app called the Jedi, and <laughs> all these things that I read about. Maybe you can uh, tell people what some of those things sure. are and how that helped with the fight. Well, let me just start with, before I talk about the robot, yeah. Jedi, and um, <laughs> the internet. It starts with, like any big project, learning. Right. I didn't know anything about Ebola, except mm -hmm. I assumed it was scary. At first, I thought it was just the disease of the day, mm -hmm. but at that particular point in time, it was not the disease of the day. When, when was this? What year is this? Well, Ebola was discovered in the early 70s, right. but this epidemic started essentially the Guinean Liberian border with a two-year-old who was infected and killed his par her child's parents not intentionally and then spread all the way down. Um, just to put the numbers in perspective, more people have died in this epidemic than in all the Ebola epidemics for the past 35 years. Um, so that was significant. Um, the other distinction was that because of the way that people move and travel. Western societies felt that they were at risk for this virus in a way that was very unique. It started with Duncan, a Liberian national who had relatives here, who could travel here, mm -hmm. I believe under a green card, to Texas, mm -hmm. and he right. was positive. And people freaked. Yes. They thought, okay, this is no longer a 
African problem, uh, yeah. Sierra Leonean Liberian mm-hmm. problem. This is a, a, a world problem. Right. So I had to learn. I learned, uh, and to be learned to learn, I think, is to be vulnerable. To yeah. say, you know, I'm supposed to be at my age an expert. I was not an expert. I wasn't even like a preschool student with regards to. Yeah, how many people were experts at that time anyway? I mean, it's a good lesson. You're exactly right. I think one nice thing about learning is that if you hit it hard every day suddenly you are the expert. Malcolm Gladwell says 10,000 hours. I think you just, people become good at what they do not because of any inherent luck and talent but actually mostly from hard work. So I worked hard to learn. Learned from the CDC. I went to Alabama and I learned uh, from a course on first responders what to expect, how the virus works, essentially how to protect uh, myself, mm-hmm. my staff, mm-hmm. in terms of using personal protective gear. Right. I talked to people in the IRC, our emergency response team. Mm-hmm. They were on the ground very right. quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they advertised within 72 hours. Right. They weren't necessarily setting up a hospital, but they were setting up the conditions that mm-hmm. allowed for uh, a hospital to be mm-hmm. to be set up. And mm-hmm. so I learned from the people on the ground uh, the numbers, right. uh, what this was looking like on the street, what were the realities. and then. After learning, again, it's not that difficult. You need to, when you create a healthcare response, you need staff. You need medicines. Mm -hmm. You need equipment. Mm -hmm. You need a structure. Mm -hmm. You need water and sanitation. Mm -hmm. You need food. Um, So we just sort of went down the checklist. One thing that was really great about me having worked for the IRC before Mm -hmm. is that I knew a lot of I not only knew the context, but I knew a lot of great individuals that I knew could serve in the roles necessary for a well-functioning Ebola treatment unit. For example, the head of our uh, Ebola treatment unit in Monrovia, his name is Jude Sinkungu, and he was my wonderful uh, medical director at Redemption Hospital, the famous Redemption Hospital in Monrovia, and I knew that he was home. He was home instantly because he was his roommate died of Ebola, and he had to uh, not only be quarantined, but then oh, wow. because he has family in Uganda, oh, wow. he went home essentially both to mourn and to rest. Okay. Well, I gave him a call. The same thing for the medical director. I knew the medical director because mm-hmm. I personally hired that medical director, right. and it went down the line, and um, we could put together a response fairly quickly. I say yeah. fairly quickly because although the structure is not very difficult sometimes to implement is difficult like how do you move a million dollars worth of personal protective gear when by the way the rest of the world just bought up most of the supply Uh you know how do you how do you modify or if a lot of things aren't known about Ebola in terms of treatment not only do you have to decide what you're going to treat with what medicines but then how do you ship it Right. You know, well, especially again when there's so many people responding, um, there's essentially only one CVS or one drugstore. I mean, the, I mean, there's there's three sure. there's three big sure. ones, but um, sure. and so yeah, um, and uh, yeah, so we we pieced it together, and uh, we're no MSF. I would say we're no Doctors Without Borders, mm-hmm. um, but we don't try to be a Doctors Without Borders. Mm-hmm. And this particular time it would be better if we were a Doctors Without Borders. I said to my director, 
why don't we just tell MSF to do it and give them the money? And yeah. and he said we have already asked, and they really? didn't they didn't want to do that because they don't have the capacity to oh, wow. to be uniformly an Ebola response organization. Oh. They do all sorts of right. great work throughout right. the world, right. and they needed other partners to step in. And that includes the IRC. Okay. So there was some partnership with um, Doctors Without Borders on this? I mean, Doctors Without Borders essentially set the paradigm right. for all response. Since right. no one had ever treated Ebola except right. MSF, okay. they worked with the CDC and the mm -hmm. WHO to set up the training programs. Okay. They right. essentially so really provided the, the architecture for the, every ETU okay. that exists. Okay. And, um, and that's interesting, too. I mean, first of all, just hats off to MSF. Yes. On the other hand, it's a very big and very traditional organization. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. even they have difficulty adjusting to a new type of epidemic. They yeah. can't react in exactly the same way. Right. Um, so, but yeah, they, they, they have really been great. Really, all the partners have been great. And this isn't a world where partnership is difficult because right. everyone is trying to demonstrate their excellence uniquely right. or don't want to wait for others. Can you go into more details of what IRC actually did with some of the technology and the medical records? Oh yeah, yeah, I forgot the actual, <laughs> the, your actual question. That's about okay, that. I'll bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Well, I'm, this is one thing I'm really proud that our team did. I had a really good staff person on the ground who essentially was an Ebola expert named mm -hmm. Matthias Borchardt. Mm -hmm. um, he um, was Mostly, a, he was an act, he was a clinician, but he was mostly an epidemiologist who did a lot of writing research. Right. right. And one of his articles, he talks about medical record keeping okay. in Ebola epidemics, and essentially the crux of the article is no one does it. For forty years, no one has, in a routine, reliable, effective way, written down what happens in the treatment of Ebola patients. And I knew that's a no-no, because I do a lot of work on quality. And essentially, if you don't write it down, you didn't do it. For any kind of like um, medical condition or whatever, right? Or for any type of important recording right. of events. Right. Like imagine like you're on a plane and the pilot decides not to record the flight. You could say that the flight existed, but if you ever needed to audit the process, if something went wrong, right. Um, or just to make sure that something went right, you need to have a record. Yeah. Well, it's sort of disingenuous to say there was no medical record keeping, but essentially it was like me yelling over the fence to you, saying like, he's breathing, or his heart rate is 50, yeah. or me writing on a piece of paper that no one will ever read because they're scared to touch it, uh -huh. or someone wants to touch it so they dunk it in chlorine <laughs> and erase everything that you wrote down. Um, at its most complicated, this actually MSF developed this year, essentially they scan the medical record from one side to the other. Uh -huh. And I suppose that was better than nothing, but it was pretty, still pretty much close to nothing. Yeah. We thought, come on, this is the 21st century. I mean, don't we all have an iPad or a touchpad, yeah, right, iPhone? Right. These things signal all the time. Right. Um, so we came up with a system. At first was just was just brainstorming, but then we found, um, someone taught me this phrase, turnkey solution. Mm -hmm. We found essentially a private company that had explored this idea before, mm -hmm. but never really played it out. Mm -hmm. And so we motivated them through 
ideas and money yeah. to play it out. Yeah. Um, so what was this? Essentially, it just consists of structuring the endeavor in a way that makes people's jobs easier who are delivering care right. and that's one lesson in life if you don't make it as an implementer if you don't make it easier for someone they will never do it now right. easier versus nothing okay it was harder mm -hmm. but easier versus what uh, any provider knows that they need to do it was easier so for example instead of having someone write by hand what were the symptoms right. It could just say, patient, feeling better, feeling worse, vomiting three times, one time. They would just touch with, with oh, their right. finger. So they have like uh, choices. It's like choices, options. even for medicines. Right. Let's say someone has mm -hmm. uh, severe anxiety. Mm -hmm. I can press a button that says anxiety, and then it will give options. First, a reminder, like, is it something they should be anxious about? Mm -hmm. um, did you talk to them? Right. Um, and second would be, well, here are some medicines that you can think about for anxiety. That's interesting. So it's like a whole flow chart of yeah. like, you know, options. And even to, to for safety, anything. like you, if you're in a rubber suit and it's 120 degrees in there and you're mm -hmm. sweating and you can feel the, the, your sweat pooling in your gloves, mm -hmm. and then you have a four-year-old that weighs 30 kilograms, mm -hmm. do you really know the dose of antibiotics or antimalarial at that time? Mm -hmm. No. Um, or you think you do and then it's not quite right. Mm -hmm. You can use this kind of system to essentially just press well, ceftriaxone. Like we already measured the weight right. uh, in triage. The thing just calculates the dose. It also um, sounds like it could be a good check and balance because there's certainly some human error or other things that could exactly. be Exactly, yeah. And so it was, a, you know, that, that's a great point. And in the United States, we use electronic medical records but it's actually created for medical, legal, and billing purposes. Mm -hmm. But we were creating it not for medical, legal reasons or for billing purposes. We were creating it to decrease the workload um, on the uh, healthcare provider mm -hmm. to provide them support and thereby increase the quality of care for the patient. Right. So where Jedi came in is that we thought we needed to have a name for this sucker. Mm -hmm. And so me and my um, colleague here, Paula Mandola, we had a bet. Like who could come up with the best, the coolest, name. the coolest name, and the winner would get you know ten free Subway sandwiches, like ten consecutive day of sandwiches, because we like Subway sandwiches, and and um, mine was just lame. I came up with IRC Connect with the C being both part of the IRC right. and the word Connect, right. and he says Jedi, and I'm like, come on, that's ridiculous. But then I came up with the acronym, and JEDI stands for Joint Electronic Health Decision Support Interface. And that's exactly what it was doing. It's not a, a record. A record is just sort of a static piece. Right. It's, it's, it's a management tool, and it also is a support tool for those providers. Now, so that's, we got the JEDI piece. Right. The internet piece, you can sort of understand because we have a server right. that whatever you put into the touchpad, it's going to communicate to the server, and then it's going to ally all the other touchpads with the same information. Mm -hmm. And then when there's internet available, it's going to signal it to the to a cloud, and then people in New York can right, see what's happening that. in in Monrovia. So that's the internet piece. The robot piece was actually sort of funny. So we had our vendor named Vecna, and they're a perfectly charming group. Mm -hmm. They 
came to Liberia to train our staff right. with our staff, right. right? But they are like the techie guys. Right. They, they know what they're doing. And yeah. that day, there was this article written from their point of view talking about not only the Jedi system, but a robot. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about with this robot. Yeah, you haven't heard about this robot. Yeah. <laughs> and it turns out that the CEO, Debbie Theobald, yes. she brought a robot. A real robot. Wow. <laughs> a robot. It's not even as complicated as a Jetsons robot, but essentially it's this thing that looks like a, what, a stereotype robot that's on wheels. Uh -huh. And it shows video of patients. It can be manipulated to just see how patients are doing it and then signal back to the non-infectious oh, so side. Oh, it has like a camera on it. Yeah, and so a remote then, control. Yeah. and. So we actually didn't love the robot because first we didn't know about the robot and frankly there's also gravel on the ground and, and, oh. and patients are scared of robots in Liberia. They've never even yeah. seen one. Imagine if like you're on death's door and you're yeah, looking for human compassion and this robot comes, comes by. Um, so, but that's where the robot came by because of this article that talked yeah. about the robot, which the public likes, but we implementers were like, we're in Monrovia, you know? You're lucky yeah, to get a good cell true. phone, could, let alone a robot. Yeah, it could be a little bit uh, disconcerting. Yeah, I mean, give me a piece of pizza before yeah. you give me a, a robot <laughs> in, in Monrovia. So, uh, but it became a joke. So yeah. that's where the robot came. It was an article yeah. that talked about the robot, the right. Jedi, and the right. internet system. Right. But it was very fun for us because we knew that we were innovating. There was no other partner doing this kind of no, work. No. Um, and it was... It was exciting, but it was also embarrassing because we're like, why wouldn't any other partner do the obvious? Mm -hmm. You obviously can't write things down and share the paper, mm -hmm. so why not just do a simple app? Yeah. It was more than a you know simple app, but, sure. but yeah, the concept sure. is right. you know you need right. to come right. up with good strategy right. and approach before you can uh, implement anything with any degree of of, of pride and certainty. Uh -huh. um, and so what do you think in general about how the Ebola crisis has been handled in the U.S. and New York? Like, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, one has to remember that it's not normal for people to be around scary things um, and that the more you're around scary things, they're not scary. When I first went to medical school, I remember not touching the body in gross anatomy for two days. <laughs> because, and we did crazy things like name the body and say thank you. And then in two weeks, you're leaning your elbows on the thigh and <laughs> asking, you know, who's hungry, right? So you get used yeah. to that. Mm -hmm. And I think we in this world know that Ebola is a virus. It's not uh, a demon. It has certain rules that it has to follow. And you don't just get it. Mm -hmm. um, in contrast to people that haven't really dealt with this and frankly many just don't do their homework yeah. you know, spend a little time to read about it mm -hmm. and you'll realize that the scare in New York City for uh, for example with Dr. Spencer yes. the system worked perfectly mm -hmm. he had worked very hard in Guinea with Doctors Without Borders in a Ebola treatment unit he came back he followed protocol by not being in large public places, you know, like raves or, you know, U2 concerts. Uh, he did go bowling, um, but if what I remember of bowling, it's not like you're, you know, bumping and grinding when you're bowling, you're just bowling. When he felt like he had symptoms, he sequestered himself. 
he called MSF and then he called Department Department of Health. Right. He was moved to a, a facility that had prepared for this, and it was done. Except it wasn't done according to the public. The public right. was was paranoid. Well, they were they were electrified that yeah. you know the subway system was now infected and the bowling place had to be shut down and the pins burned and and how irresponsible these health workers uh, to to bring this virus back, not understanding that a those beliefs essentially were a hundred percent wrong, and b those people are heroes. Those people prevent mass immigration of people with the virus that you don't see. Right. Um, so, in, in my own family, my loving family, when they knew that I was going to Liberia, I'm not like my staff working in the Bullet Treatment Unit. I'm here as a as mostly on an organizational and a leadership strategic mm -hmm. role. Mm -hmm. But I also, just like I practice medicine, I go to the field and right. make sure that what we do is true. Right. It coincided with Thanksgiving, and. I remember my own dad saying, maybe you shouldn't come back for Thanksgiving. Oh, wow. And my dad's a physical chemist, you know, <laughs> graduate from, PA, uh, from MIT, he, uh, Tai Da. Right, He's a smart right, dude. Right. And the guy, no. So you're thinking, my own family doesn't believe that I would make responsible decisions. Society doesn't, the society I come from doesn't right. think I'll make responsible right. decisions. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you just want to, like, you know, throw up your hands and go move to like Thailand where they might be a little bit more reasonable. But I mean, it's understandable, yeah, but it sure. was also sure. just like the public yeah. was annoyed. We yeah. in the field were a little yeah. bit annoyed yeah. too. Yeah. But what about like if people were so paranoid to think that there could have been some cases of people who aren't medical professionals and who aren't like so responsible or aware of like uh, what they should do if they have symptoms or didn't know and brought over here? I mean, do you think that that's a realistic concern? Yeah, it is, and that's why we have to we respond with systems. So we have um, systems in place that if you are from West Africa, you get asked certain questions. Um, if you exhibit certain symptoms, then you are to report those to local health departments, uh, what have you. But the cases of health professionals coming back was entirely different because yeah. these were a Americans, homegrown yeah. Americans. Yeah. And B, those people, you could say, and I'm not saying to be dramatic, you could say that they were willing to risk their life for the public's health. Right. Do you think those people would be responsible enough not to just oh, infect yeah. their fellow right. you know, Americans? Right. So I think that was, that was the rub. But certainly, I think science also pretends to know everything, and they don't. And you should always, um, you should always go towards caution, but you shouldn't go towards paranoia. Right, you know, right. Like well, if the mm -hmm. nurse from MSF wants her to ride her bike in Maine, for Pete's sakes. I mean, are the squirrels going to get it? I don't right. think so. Right. Well, I mean, the question would be, like, um, how does the average person feel? Like, do they feel that our healthcare system or the, emer like the emergency hospital emergency room down the block would know what to do if somebody showed up and had some symptoms that they didn't know what it was like would they go through the right line of questioning like did you travel or were you here were you there and be able to you know come to a conclusion that this person had some kind of infectious i mean it's such an interesting point Felicia. like that was exactly the problem in texas with duncan right. who died right. the issue to me was not whether the care system could catch an ebola infection mm -hmm. that's too narrow 
the issue was that is the care system such that it can't even do the most basic. So who hasn't been to the emergency room right. and waited five hours? Yeah. Who hasn't gone to the doctor and felt figuratively naked, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. part of the health equation? Right. So to me, it is a concern, but it's not a concern because of Ebola. Mm -hmm. It's a concern because we've invested so much in healthcare, right. and yet we can't do very basic things like hear people, hear what they say right. and take it seriously. Right. In a way, mm -hmm. people could blame Duncan. He died, so you could, it's easy to blame him. But he said he came from Liberia. Right. He did not right. say he right. didn't come from right. Liberia. Right. Um, and by the way, he's going to the emergency room. Who goes to the emergency room for fun? Nobody. Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. So mm -hmm. if I'm someone, I'm going to make sure. But you couldn't fault mm -hmm. someone from Texas right. not knowing about Ebola. Oh, yeah, sure. Who knows about Ebola in Texas? Right. People don't even know about it in New York. But what they should know is that if the health department, the CDC, has issued a warning that's gone to mm -hmm. the entire system right. or, or just signal that someone is saying that they're sick, the diagnosis was viral infection and he was sent home on antibiotics. Mm -hmm. That itself is mm -hmm. a, a sign that the system doesn't know what it's doing, right, trying to treat right. viruses right. with antibiotics. Right, right. So I think in a lot of this, we, we learn, um, and that takes time, but we have to make sure we learn the right lessons. Right, right. I think that particular lesson was not well learned, that we're not so prepped not only for an Ebola emergency, but really any emergency. Right, that's a good point. And like, uh, we would hope that what happened here shed some light on that. And I wonder if it has, if it, um, people have reflected on enough so that there's some systematic change. Um, that hopefully yeah. it has in some way. Yeah, let's just hope that hope is not what Mark Twain said or defined it as. Mm -hmm. Hope is believing in what you know ain't so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, hopefully it would inspire some actions, let's think about it that way. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I find your, your career is very interesting because you, you have a medical degree, a Master of Public Health, but as you've mentioned, you haven't really exactly followed the um, traditional career path of being a medical doctor. How did you get in, along in the, get on this path? Because, you know, most people, they go to medical school for a very specific reason. And how did you go along in this path? And what is it that motivates you in your career? Well, I've chosen this path for purely selfish reasons. When I make career decisions, I do it because that thing I choose makes me the happiest, is the most interesting, something that keeps me learning mm -hmm. and potentially can make a difference. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky when I graduated from Berkeley, uh, and as the case, like a perfectly, perfect Berkeley graduate not knowing what the next step was. <laughs> I was going through the newspaper uh, for pizza coupons. and. I saw this advertisement for a national teaching corps called Teach for America. I subsequently became a teacher in Oakland in middle school. And how it's connected to my career path is that I basically saw that health was delivered in many different ways and not just uh, by the doctor. Right. I could see who was headed in the right direction and who um, might um, not make it. Uh, whether that be in terms of their aspirations, their verbal aspirations, or just not make it in terms mm -hmm. of living. And indeed, in 
urban Oakland in that particular school, many people did not make it on, in those terms. I was very young. I mean, mm -hmm. I thought I was old, but it was, I was 21 back then. And um, I didn't have the confidence to stay because I thought, you know, my, my students just say, oh, Mr. Wong, Mr. Wong, you know so much, you know, you know, thank you, you know, you know how, how do we get to where you are? I'm like, I don't know anything. Yeah. I come here every day trying to figure out what the next lesson is and how I could be a role model to you, you know, who I don't reflect. I'm an Asian guy. All of you are African American. Uh -huh. One scare Taiwanese actually was in my, my class, Steve Ma, very smart oh, wow. guy. And, um, and so I said, well, I want to, if this is all about health defined broadly, I'm going to learn it like, you know, the stereotype learns it. So I went to med uh, medical school. But I went to medical school with this perspective. I had a context for the study of medicine. I did not think that doctors had, you know, the, the only solution for, the, for health, for individuals' health issues. Um, and I also had the opportunity when I saw, like, the same homeless people coming in and out of the emergency room or the same abscess become infected because of living conditions or that I went to study public health back at my alma mater, Ber uh, mm -hmm. Berkeley, and I essentially learned about the social um, determinants of health. How, you know, for adults, the determinants of health are primarily found in your, uh, your family, mm -hmm. in your employment, and then as a kid is primarily found in your school mm -hmm. and your family. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and again, that just sort of made it a little bit more complicated but also a little bit more interesting. Mm -hmm. So I was happy to, you know, to complete my medical studies, but I knew it wasn't the whole deal. And, and to be true to the social determinants of health, I, um, I, uh, I found this great fellowship that took me to the Kennedy School to mm -hmm. learn about government, mm -hmm. how resources are distributed, and that was then the connective to the United States Senate, me getting a job as one of the few doctors in the Senate uh, that could actually inform health uh, legislation. Um, and, you know, the other piece is that I come from a family, even though my parents usually just shake their head when they, you know, hear about my health path. Uh, no, health path, they, my dad always says, why can't you just be a doctor and be easy? <laughs> why can't you just have kids and be happy and rich? Um, they, you know, indirectly really taught us to to dare, to, to do things. If you're scared, you actually go for it. Um, part of that was we were all, I was born and raised in Salt Lake City, Utah, so you really had to try to find your identity when you were not a misfit in almost every category. And because yes, my... You're a minority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always say I was the black person on the basketball team. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my dad was, uh, also, you know, he's a professor, so we did uh, sabbatical every seven years, and we'd move out into the world. We'd oh, live in China, we oh. live in Germany, we'd, you know, travel. Right. And, and so we had a, a more global view. Right. Um, it was not, that was not my parents' intention. Um, but yeah. that was the consequence. And, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I come from essentially, you know, middle class privilege, yeah. and um, you know, have just enough to think that you can do it, but not have too yeah. much to get complacent. Yeah. What advice do you have for um, other people who are going on a similar path, or people who are in medicine but then thinking that they don't want to practice traditional medicine but still do something with their degree? What would you say to people like that? On the one hand, I would be very hackneyed in my advice, and that is do what you want to do and just do it 100%. If you are a physician and you want to act, go act. Mm -hmm. um, you're doing no one any good by 
displacing passion for obligation. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also say that um, if you don't want to become old in the most unflattering sense, you have to be constantly willing to learn and to adapt and to change and to admit that you're wrong. And there's no better way than to to do that than to put yourself in new, often awkward, exhilarating situations. That to me defines life. It's just sharing the wealth to encourage others mm-hmm. to dare to be different, mm-hmm. um, especially as minorities, you know, mm-hmm. as, right. as Taiwanese Americans, mm-hmm. as Taiwanese, as whatever you are, mm-hmm. to, to not let artificial social constructs get in your way right. um, and to be happy about it and, and be thankful about it. Right. Well, thank you so much for sharing all that. And if um, people want to know a little bit about you, would you mind sharing the, you have a website where you said you do some writing. Would you be willing to share that with people? Oh, yes. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I, um, I decided, uh, this is short, um, just that if I'm going to do this work, I want to try to capture it. And um, I, so I've decided, I tried to write really about um, the work that my teams do every two weeks or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I put it on um, a, a web page and, uh, and then I thought, oh, this is how I'm going to raise money for all these great causes, like these secondary causes that you find when you work in the field, uh-huh. like the kid that can't go uh-huh. to school and someone who needs you know, money to buy their insulin. I've essentially only made $200 in about six years, so I'm not doing so well on that front. But, well, uh, I mean, that in itself is like a whole force in a project, you know. Th- yeah, That could is. be a full-time job, just uh, working on promoting that and getting people behind that. It's not easy to get people to reach into their pockets. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, so anyway it's on a platform called Squarespace, mm-hmm. and you just have to look up Wilson Wong, W-A-N-G. And then you can see the what's, kind of what's work. What's the website? Web it's called Squarespace. Okay, just yeah. Squarespace and then slash. Oh, I think it's Wilson Dash Wong. Dot Squarespace. Okay. Dot com. And how long have you been keeping this? Uh, it's been about five years. Okay, great. Yeah, so it has pieces from Liberia, from Indonesia, from the U.S. and. I personally like it. Yeah, great. Okay, so you know, people can look that up if you want to know more about your work and see where you're going off next. Um, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule and being on the Talking Taiwan podcast. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Dr. Wilson Wong about his work and the 2014 Ebola outbreak. To learn more about Dr. Wong, visit wilson-wang.squarespace.com. Stay tuned for the next episode of Talking Taiwan, when I'll be speaking to Dr. Wong about how his Ebola work led him to establish Walking Doctors and his current work on COVID-19, the coronavirus in New York City. If you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, please tell a friend and take the time to go to Apple Podcasts, rate us and give us a review. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.